This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book on PDF. The title of this book is Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress by Gary North. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Chapter 3 Wheat and Tares, Historical Continuity Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man, which sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then had the tares? He said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, Nay, lest while ye gather up the tares, ye root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Matthew 13 24 through 30. The parable of the wheat and tares is instructive in dealing with the question Does history reveal a progressive separation between the saved and the lost? The parable begins with the field which is planted with wheat, but which is sown with tares by an enemy during the night. Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and 36 through 43. The parable refers to the building of the kingdom of God, not simply to the institutional church. The field is the world. Christ explained, Matthew thirteen thirty seven, The good wheat, the children of God, now must operate in a world which the tares, meaning the unregenerate, are operating. The servants, angels, instantly recognize the difference, but they are told not to yank up the tares yet. Such a violent act would destroy the wheat by plowing up the field. To preserve the growing wheat, the owner allows the tares to develop. What is preserved is historical continuity and development. Only at the end of the world is a final separation made. Until then, for the sake of the wheat, the tares are not ripped out. The parable of the wheat and tares tells us that the final separation comes at the end of time. Until then, the groups must share the same world. The agricultural parable of wheat and tares implies slow growth to maturity. We therefore have to conclude that no radically discontinuous event of separation will mark the period of historical development. The total separation is an event of the last day, the final judgment. It is a discontinuous event that is the capstone of historical continuity. The death and resurrection of Christ was probably the last historically significant event that properly can be said to be radically discontinuous. Possibly the day of Pentecost could serve as the last earth-shaking, kingdom-shaking event. The fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D., were major discontinuities in history, but not on a scale of the death and resurrection of the God-man, Jesus Christ. The next major eschatological discontinuity will be the Day of Judgment, so we should expect growth in our era, the kind of growth indicated by the agricultural parables. What must be stressed is the element of continuous development. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all seeds. But when it is grown, 
it is the greatest among, er, among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Matthew thirteen, thirty-one and 32. As this kingdom comes into maturity, there is no physical separation between saved and lost. There is, of course, ethical separation. Total separation will come only at the end of time. There can be important changes, even as the seasons or changes in familiar weather patterns can speed up or retard growth, but we must not expect a radical separation. While I do not have the space to demonstrate the point, this means that the timing of the separation spoken of by premillennialists, the rapture, is not in accord with the parables of the kingdom. The rapture comes at the end of history. The wheat cannot be removed from the field until that final day, when we are caught up to meet Christ in the clouds. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 There will indeed be a rapture, but it comes at the end of history, when the reapers, angels, harvest the wheat and the tares. Postmillennialists do not deny the rapture. It will come on the day of judgment. It will be a postmillennial rapture. Why a postmillennial rapture? The amillennialists may say. Why not simply point out that the rapture comes at the end of time and let matters drop? The answer is important. We must deal with the question of the historical development of the wheat and tares. We must see that this process of time leads to Christian victory on earth and in time. It leads to victory in history. It leads to victory in the pre-consummation, new heavens and new earth. Isaiah 65, 17-20 Dominion through differentiation An important part of historical development is man's fulfillment of the dominion covenant. New scientific discoveries can be made through the common grace of God, once the care of the field is entrusted to men. The regularities of nature still play a role, but increasingly men devise technologies that substitute for natural processes. In the case of agriculture, for example, fertilizers, irrigation systems, regular care, scientific management, and even satellite surveys are part of the life of the field. Men exercise increasing dominion over the world. Who should rule? A question then arises. If the devil's followers rule, will they care tenderly for the needs of the godly? Will they exercise dominion for the benefit of the wheat, so to speak? On the other hand, will the tares be cared for by the Christians? If Christians rule, what happens to the unrighteous? Opponents of biblical law governed civil rule by Christians often argue that such rule is inherently tyrannical. Unlike the clear message of the Old Testament, that tyranny is the fruit of worshipping false gods, with biblical law as the basis of social peace. We are told that New Testament ethics, for some reason, requires neutral, non-Christian civil government. Biblical law is somewhat tyrannical. Incredibly, most modern Christians believe such humanistic propaganda, especially professors who teach in Christian colleges. Too many years studying in humanistic graduate school programs have taken their toll. Christian intellectuals, have bought the party line, the humanist party. Satan's followers are covenanted to the destroyer. Satan was the original revolutionary and tyrant. He would destroy the wheat if he could. On the other hand, Christians are covenanted to God, who protect the tares from rooting. Thus, the biblical worldview calls Christians to exercise dominion in the world, not in order to to tyrannize non-Christians, but rather to preserve law and order, God's law and God's order the only kind that the Bible requires. The wheat is required by God to recognize the right of the tares, to conduct themselves without interference, except when they publicly violate biblical law.
The Bible acknowledges the freedom of both, tares and wheat, to work out their respective destinies with fear and trembling. This freedom can safely be granted ethical rebels because of the greater productivity of the righteous. The wealth of the unrighteous is laid up for the just. Proverbs 13:22b. In confidence, Christians need not fear the peaceful, competitive efforts of our ethical opponents. In contrast, our opponents have every reason to fear us, not because we are tyrants, but because the world is structured and governed by God in such a way as to produce historical victory for His law-abiding people. We get richer, wiser, and culturally dominant when we are faithful to God's law. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14 Our opponents get poorer, more foolish, and culturally irrelevant when they violate the terms of the covenant. Deuteronomy 28, 15-68 This disturbs them. They do not want a fair fight, meaning open competition. They want control by the state and then control over the state. They want power, for they cannot achieve long-term dominion. They worship the power of religion. Too many modern Christians worship in the tabernacles of the escape religion, the other alternative to the dominion religion that is required by Bible. All they want is to be left alone by the God-haters. The best way to achieve this goal, they erroneously believe, is to avoid confrontation with unbelievers, especially political confrontation. They therefore remove themselves from politics. They also feel compelled to justify their retreat from responsibility by affirming the existence of a supposed God-given right of power-seeking God-haters to impose neutral, humanist civil law on Christians. These Christians defend humanist civil law in the name of freedom. They say that biblical law in the hands of Christians will always lead to tyranny. But they admit readily that biblical law in the Old Testament before the resurrection of Christ and before He sent the Holy Spirit to lead His church into all truth was the basis of peace and freedom. You figure it out. It is beyond my powers of comprehension. They are saying implicitly that the tares can be trusted to care for the needs of the field, including the wheat, but the wheat cannot be trusted to care for the field at all? The fact is, we need biblical law in order to preserve historical continuity. We need biblical law in order to avoid humanism's religion revolution, especially Marx's version. In order to be preserved, the field, world, needs Christians in positions of authority in every area of life. This means that the reprobates will be treated lawfully. They will be given civil freedom precisely because humanists, such as bloody Marxists, bloody Nazis, and bloody Muslims, will not be in control. Differentiation God intends for the dominion religion of the Bible to triumph over both the power religion and the escape religion. This is the fundamental issue of differentiation in history. Men are not passive. They are commanded to be active to seek dominion over nature, Genesis one twenty eight, nine one through seven, they are to manage the field world, they are to work out their salvation or damnation in fear and trembling, Philippians two twelve b, as good people and evil people work out their God ordained destinies, what kind of development can be expected, who prospers most, the saved or the lost, who becomes dominant in, in history, Christians do, they have the tool of dominion, biblical law, and they have the Holy Spirit. Do they become dominant only after the rapture? No. They become dominant before the rapture. The rapture takes place simultaneously with the final judgment. Remember, the parable tells us that there will be no premature separation of wheat from the tares. That happens only once at judgment day. Or will Christians become dominant only after the final judgment when God establishes the fully consummated new heaven and new earth? 
No, they will become dominant before the final judgment, since God has already established the new heavens and the new earth at Christ's resurrection. This is why Isaiah 65, 17-20 speaks of the new heavens and the new earth as a place where sinners still operate, indicating a pre-final judgment kingdom. How will Christians achieve dominion? By faithful service to God. By what standard are Christians to evaluate faithful service? By biblical law. They are to become earthly judges, self-judges first, and then judges in every area of life. Dominion through superior judgment. Isaiah 32 is a neglected portion of scripture in our day. It informs us of a remarkable era that is coming. It is an era of epistemological self-consciousness. To use Cornelius Van Til's phrase, it is an era when men will know God's standards and apply them accurately to the historical situation. It is not an era beyond the final judgment, for it speaks of churls as well as liberal people. Yet it cannot be an era that is inaugurated by a radical separation between saved and lost, the rapture. For such a separation comes only at the end of time. This era will come before Christ returns physically to earth in judgment. We read in the first eight verses, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment, and a man shall be as an hiding place from the wind, and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land, and the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the ears of them that hear shall hearken, the heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. For the vile person will speak villainy, and his heart will work iniquity, to practice hypocrisy, and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl are evil, he deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even when the needy speaketh right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. To repeat, the vile person shall be no more called liberal, nor the churl said to be bountiful. Verse 5. Churls persist in their churl churlishness. Liberal men continue to be gracious. It does not say that all churls will be converted. But it also does not say that the liberals shall be destroyed. The two exist together, but the language of promise indicates that Isaiah knew full well that in his day, and in our day, churls are called liberal and vice versa. Men refuse to apply their knowledge of God's standards to the world in which they live, but it shall not always be thus. Exercising Biblical Judgment At this point, we face two crucial questions. The answers separate many Christian commentators. First, should we expect this knowledge to come instantaneously? Second, when this prophesied world of epistemological self-consciousness finally dawns, which group will be the earthly victors, churls or liberals? The amillennialist must answer that this parallel development of knowledge is gradual. The postmillennialist agrees. Wheat and tares develop together. There is continuity in history. The premillennialist, especially the dispensationalist, dissents. The premillennial position is that this future era of accurate judgment will come only after the rapture and the subsequent establishment of an earthly kingdom, with Christ ruling on earth in person. 
Christians cannot achieve such good judgment apart from perfect redemption and then Christ's physical presence in history. Christians must wait for the physical return of Christ, at which time, number one, they will be given perfect judgment, number two, they will be instantaneously wholly regenerated, number three, they will be clothed in perfect, sin-free, eternal, indestructible bodies, and then number four, they will be sent back to rule over the common sinful folk who were left behind at the rapture and who have not been given eternal sin-free bodies. The ability to exercise accurate judgment is therefore the product of a radical break into or out of history. The amillennial position sees no era of pre-consummation, pre-final judgment righteousness. Such righteousness will exist only in the church, and the church will come under increasing persecution. Therefore, he concludes that the growth in good judgment does separate the saved from the lost culturally. But since there is no coming era of godly victory culturally, the amillennialist has to say that this ethical and epistemological separation leads to the defeat of Christians on the battlefields of culture. Evil will triumph before the final judgment, and since this process is continuous, the, de the decline into darkness must be part of the process of differentiation over time. This increase in righteous judgment on the part of the church nevertheless is overcome culturally by the victory of Satan's forces over the church. The postmillennialist categorically rejects such a view of knowledge as the ability of Christians to make accurate, God-honoring judgments in history increases over time, more authority is transferred to them. Faithfulness to the terms of the covenant being brings additional blessings. Deuteronomy 28, 1-14 The converse is also true. As men increase in unrighteousness, God's curses overtake them. Deuteronomy 28, 15-68 As pagans lose their ability to make such judgments, as a direct result of their denial of and war against biblical law, authority will be removed from them, just as it was removed from Israel in 70 AD. Obedient response to true knowledge in the post-millennial framework leads to blessing in history, not a curse. It leads to the victory of God's people, not their defeat. But the amillennialist has to deny this. The increase of true self-knowledge that Isaiah 32 predicts becomes a curse for Christians in the amillennial system. Van Til makes this idea fundamental in his book on common grace. We will examine his arguments in chapter 4. Conclusion Christ's parable of the wheat and tares emphasizes historical continuity prior to the final judgment. The kingdom of God will not be interrupted by any radical break that separates evil people from righteous people. They mature side by side. Removing the evil people the suggestion of the servants would hurt the righteous. The point, this points to the need for social cooperation and the division of labor in history. Men need each other's skills and services in order to work out their earthly destinies. The unrighteous people are protected from destruction in history for the sake of the righteous. Christians are called by God to take dominion in every area of life. God expects Christians to rule righteously, meaning in terms of His revealed law. If they order their lives and institutions in terms of God's law, they will find that they exercise greater and greater authority. They will not be in earthly bondage to humanists forever. This was the lesson of Joseph in the prison. The three Hebrew youths in Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace, Daniel in the lion's den, and Jesus on the cross. In the case of Jesus' death, the worst injustice in history led to his attainment to total cosmic power. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, 
All power is given to me in heaven and in earth. Matthew 28:18. As history progresses, the saved and the lost differentiate themselves ethically. The righteous became, become dominant, not through the exercise of lawless power, but through obedience to biblical law. A continuous ethical separation takes place over time. Eventually, men begin to apply God's standards to earthly situations, and they will recognize the difference between churls and righteous people. Liberal, generous people will devise liberal things and stand in terms of what they have devised. As men develop their skills in making godly judgments, they will gain greater authority. The Satanists will not dominate history through power, nor will Christ and his angels uproot the tares, let alone the wheat, in history, before both wheat and tares have fully matured. Thus, neither the amillennial vision nor the premillennial vision is correct. The church will not be defeated in history before Christ returns physically to rule. The gates of hell shall not stand against the offensive onslaught of Christ's church. In summary, number one, we and tares remain in the field until the final judgment. Number two, the tares, unrighteous, are preserved for the sake of the wheat, righteous. Number three, all men are under the terms of the dominion covenant, Genesis 1, 27-28. Number four, Satanists would prefer to uproot the wheat. Number five, God tells his followers to leave the tares alone, so long as they are obedient publicly to his law. Number six, no radical uprooting of the wheat in history is spoken of anywhere in the Bible. Number seven, no radical uprooting of the tares in history is spoken of in the Bible. Number eight, the next discontinuous eschatological event is the final judgment. Number nine, the rapture takes place immediately preceding the final judgment. Number 10. The separation in time is ethical. Number 11. Men will eventually identify churls and generous people accurately. Number 12. This increase in wisdom takes time. It does not happen overnight. And number 13. Authority is steadily captured by Christians because of their greater covenantal faithfulness, better judgment, and greater reliability. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows. Or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.